iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Good evening and welcome to the Apple Store Soho for tonight's special event. Uh, tonight we're talking about a film called Up in the Air. Up in the Air stars Oscar winner George Clooney as Ryan Bingham, a corporate downsizing expert whose cherished life on the road is threatened just as he, on the, as he is on the cusp of reaching 10 million frequent flyer miles and just after he's met the frequent traveler woman of his dreams. Director Jason Reitman joins us tonight to discuss this exciting film. And uh, before we bring him out, we want you to enjoy the film's trailer. Now, this is going to be a little difficult, so stay with me. How much does your life weigh? Imagine for a second that you're carrying a backpack. Now, I want you to pack it with all the stuff that you have in your life. You start with the little things, the things on shelves and in drawers and the knickknacks. You start adding larger stuff, clothes, tabletop appliances, lamps, your TV. Backpack should be getting pretty heavy now. You go bigger. Your couch, your car, your home. I want you to stuff it all into that backpack. Now, I want you to fill it with people. Start with casual acquaintances, friends of friends, folks around the office. And then you move into the people that you trust with your most intimate secrets. Brothers, your sisters, your children, your parents, and finally your husband, your wife, boyfriend, your girlfriend. You get them into that backpack. Feel the weight of that bag. Make no mistake, your relationships are the heaviest components in your life. All those negotiations and arguments and secrets and compromises. The slower we move, the faster we die. Make no mistake, moving is living. Some animals were meant to carry each other to live symbiotically over a lifetime. Star-crossed lovers, monogamous swans. We are not swans. We're sharks. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming director Jason Reitman. How's everyone doing? Good. Couple goods, mostly quiet. So you guys were just like shopping for a laptop and then you're like, you know what, I think I'm going to learn a little bit about directing now. I hope you have questions. Um... Hmm. Uh, my name's Jason Reitman, and I directed Thank You for Smoking, and I directed Juno, and now I just directed this. I, uh, I'm the son of a famous director. My father's name is Ivan Reitman. He directed Ghostbusters and Dave and Twins, and uh, he produced Animal House. And I remember when I was 17 years old, I, uh... I was terrified about the idea of being a director. I thought, why would I possibly try to be a director? Why would I try to live in my father's shadow for their entire life? More than likely, I would be a failure, and then I'd be a failure on a very public level. Um, I mean, I know the presumptions about the children of famous people. Um, usually, if you're the son of a famous director, you're a talentless, spoiled brat, and more than likely, you have an alcohol and drug problem. Um, 
And I thought, why enter a profession where this would be the going assumption of who I was? And so I went pre-med. I thought I would be a doctor. I thought, no one questions why you become a doctor. No one's ever like, doctor, really? You couldn't do better than that. And I went to college. I was pre-med. And I was doing very poorly. And I'm a bright enough guy. I did well in school. But for some reason, uh, I just did this, you didn't have the heart for this. And my father came to visit me. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm scared. I'm scared of becoming a director. I'm scared of following in your footsteps. Um, I said, even if I were to have success, I would never have any real success of my own. And I told him why I wanted to be a doctor. And he told me a story from when he was my age. He told me a story from when he was 17. My father grew up in Toronto. And at one point, he went to Montreal. And in Montreal, he discovered submarine sandwiches. Not like the brand Subway, but... Like, just like foot-long sandwiches. And I guess they were really popular in Quebec. And he came back to Toronto. And he went to my grandfather. And he said, Dad, Dad, you got to give me the money to start up a submarine sandwich shop. We can make a fortune. We'll have lines going around the block. And my grandfather said, you know, Ivan, I'm sure these sandwiches are very good. And if I gave you the money to open up a submarine sandwich shop, we could make a lot of money. And you know what? I'd be very proud of you. Your mother and I would be very proud. But there's not enough magic in it for you. And it was off of that advice that my father went to school. He was a music major, actually, and he started a film club, and that's how he became a filmmaker. So my father told me the story, and he said, Jason, there's no more noble a profession in the world than being a doctor. And if you became a doctor, your mother and I would be over the moon. We'd be so proud of you. But I don't think there's enough magic in it for you. I think you're a storyteller, and you have to follow your heart. And it was off of that advice that I actually came back to Los Angeles. I was in upstate New York at a school called Skidmore that I really only went to because they had a two-to-one girl-to-guy ratio. And I got back to Los Angeles, and I went to USC, and I went to the head of admissions. The spring semester was literally starting three days later. And I went to her, and she had no time to see me. And I said, can I please just walk you to your car? And she agreed. And on the way there, I convinced her to let me into the school. The end of my argument was, help me come home. And she bought that. And I started school there three days later. I was an English major. I was a creative writing major. Um, I listened to a lot of books on tape. I wrote. And I started to get the urge to make my first film. And a lot of people ask me, you know, a lot of people presume that the reason I became a director is because I grew up on the sets of broad comedies. And that undoubtedly, uh, that was kind of my greatest influence. But the reason why I became a director was all the American independent filmmakers that were coming out of festivals like Sundance in the 90s. It was guys like uh, Quentin and Rodriguez and PTA and Wes Anderson and Spike Jones and Sofia Coppola and Alexander Payne, probably most of all. It was their films, and really the fact that they came out of festivals has enormous influenced me, because I've already explained to you, I was really terrified of kind of having my own name, and in the film festival system, I suddenly went, well, here's this strangely democratic process. If I was a sculptor, I would have been fucked, but as a filmmaker, there was this Darwinian system that I could submit myself to, and for the same reason that people look to film festivals to break from obscurity, I could actually kind of be obscure and let my film speak for itself. And I made my first short film and I submitted it. It played a few film festivals. It did okay. And then I made another one and it was a little better and it played a few more. And then by the third one, I really nailed it. I made a great short film. It was called In God We Trust. It played like a hundred film festivals. Um, and that got me my agent. I started directing commercials too. And my agent said, so what do you want to do? 
And I think he expected me to talk about like a specific genre of film, but I said, I want to make Thank You for Smoking. It was a book that a friend of mine had given me. She gave it to me, and she said, Jason, this book was written for you, and she was absolutely right. A couple years later, oddly, that woman went to prison, but um, that's true. But uh, in the meantime, the book really spoke to me. It was kind of my first introduction to libertarian arguments, and I just thought it was hilarious. It was exactly the kind of filmmaker I wanted to be, and uh, I told my agent, that is the, that, this is what I want to make as my first film. And he looked into it and he said, well, this is going to be really tough. Uh, the rights are owned by Mel Gibson. He originally wanted to direct and star in Thank You for Smoking, which is crazy to me now. But, uh, but, and it was, it, was, it was buried under a pile of money, which is a, a very often case, and some of you probably know this, but uh, I have no idea who you are and what your experience is and what you know. But um, I'm going to present you know nothing, and that way the person who does know nothing will really appreciate this the most. Um, it was buried under money. They had bought the book, they had hired various screenwriters, and this is a very common thing in Hollywood where they will go after a project, they will throw screenwriter after screenwriter, and at a certain point they've spent millions of dollars, and they basically say, you know, it'd be easier just to start with something new than to even push any further on this project. It's kind of like being in a relationship. You're in a relationship with a guy or a girl and you realize, God, we have so many problems, and yes, could we work this out? Sure, if we put enough time and effort, but maybe I'll just start with somebody new. Maybe that would actually just be the easier thing to do. And that's what happens, and these projects die. And that's where Thank You for Smoking was. And I went in, and I just, uh, I fought very hard. I told them exactly what kind of movie I wanted to make. The following weekend, I wrote like 30 pages of the screenplay. I submitted it. They liked it. They hired me. They paired me, like, Writer's Guild scale. I wrote the draft. And everyone seemed to approve. It went all the way up the board. I even got a call from Mel Gibson, who loved the script. He called me from a plane and talked to me for about 30 minutes, at first about the script and then about digital filmmaking. He wanted to talk to me about how much he loved digital filmmaking. He invited me to go watch the new Star Wars film at Lucas at the Skywalker Ranch, an invitation that never ended up coming to fruition. Um, but at that point, we went out to the town with the script, and nobody wanted to make it. No one would uh, make that film, and it's like years would go by, and no one wanted to make the film and continue to direct commercials. I got offered movies, but they were the wrong movies. They were the kind of movies that would have really set me on the wrong track. I remember the case I always bring up is Dude, Where's My Car was offered to me twice. <laughs> and, and it was very tempting to take Dude, Where's My Car. Maybe if it was called Dude, Where Is My Car, I might have done it, but um, I... I, I did want to. I wanted to be on set. I wanted to be making a film. I wanted a film that would play in theaters and people would actually see it. But I, I knew if I made that film, um, I would, it would have taken me years off course. And certainly the 12 of you that showed up to see me today wouldn't have wanted to hear me talk. Um, so I kind of stuck to it and I started looking for something new. And in that time, I went to a bookstore. There's a great bookshop in LA called Book Soup. And I went in and I found Up in the Air. It was sitting on a table. I did something awful. I judged a book by its cover. I really liked the cover art, and I bought it. And, and I fell in love with that book. I started writing, and I got about 30 pages in when my agent got a, gave me a call one day and said, look, there's a guy named David Sachs. He's one of the creators of PayPal. He and his partner sold PayPal to eBay for $1.5 billion. They now have some extra spending cash, and they'd like to make your movie. 
And that was kind of it. They, uh, they signed a check and made Thank You for Smoking. And that's how my career actually got started. I was told my entire childhood that it would actually be nepotism, but in the end, it turned out to be a San Francisco millionaire. And we made that film, and uh, we brought it to the Toronto Film Festival. It sold to Fox Searchlight and actually had a release. And after that, I went back to writing Up in the Air. I wrote about 30 more pages. And went about 60, 70 pages into Up in the Air, I got a new phone call. It was, from a, it was from a friend who said, hey, I got a screenplay you got to read. And I said, oh, what is it? He said, oh, it's a teen pregnancy comedy written by a former stripper from Minneapolis. I said, wow, that sounds fantastic. Um, uh, about an hour later, my doorbell rang. I answered the door. There was a messenger. I began reading a screenplay. And I realized 20 minutes later, I was still standing in front of my door reading the script. It was outstanding. It was Juno. It was a script that changed my life. It was a script that I knew if I didn't direct, I would regret it for the rest of my life. And frankly, what blew me away about it wasn't the language. It's not the thing that people most often talk about. It's not the fact that they were saying things like, what the, you know, I said, what the blog? It's not what the blog. What is it? What's the expression? Anyone remember? No? Okay. Um, it was the fact that the characters were so inventive and, and, and took, uh, made unusual decisions and surprised me the entire way. And I stopped writing up in the air again, and I went to direct Juno, which was a wonderful experience. I got to work with great actors, and we had this kind of unusual phenomenon where we made this tiny movie for $7 million, and it went on to gross $240 million, something that no one ever really could have expected, and I still don't quite understand to this day. When it was done, I went back, and I finally finished the screenplay for Up in the Air. And when I went back and reread it, it was very strange, because when I started writing it, I was basically a single guy living in an apartment, and by the time I was finished, I had met my wife, I had become a father, I had a mortgage now, my life had changed, and this movie, this book, this adaptation, that began as a movie about a guy who fires people for a living, had become a movie about a guy who was trying to figure out what and who he wanted in his life. It had become a lot more about me. It began to reflect the economy. We, I started writing it. We were in uh, this economic boom. And then by the time I went to direct it, we were in one of the worst recessions on record. It became a very personal screenplay for me. And by the time we were finished with the movie, I realized I had made my most personal film. And I think of this as perhaps the most personal film I'll ever make. I think it really reflects me. I see myself in the main character. And I ask a lot of personal questions with it. None of you have seen it yet, right? Have any of you seen it? It's not released. I presume some of you just stole it offline. No? Really? <laughs> Juno, number five stolen film last year. Just saying. Thank you. Um, and that's my career. That's my life so far. If you have any questions, it'd be my pleasure to answer them. I, was, I know it's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. Yeah, I do like Billy Wilder. No, I haven't seen enough Wilder films to say that he was a big enough influence to say that I direct like him. Um, I think the world of him in the few films that I've seen, but um, probably much more influenced by Hal Ashby and Alexander Payne at the end of the day. But dialogue is important to me. I like making talky movies. That's why I probably won't end up directing an action film. It would just people talking about action. Sure. 
How do I direct dialogue? The best advice I ever got on directing uh, actors I got from my father. And he said, your barometer for comedy is nowhere as good as your barometer for honesty. So when you're watching your actors, don't worry if they're being funny. You actually have no idea. You have to trust the fact that the script is funny, trust the fact that you chose the right actors, and at this point, ask yourself, are they real? Because you'll know if they're being honest. Watch them and just listen to the way they say something. How they begin the line, how they end the line, what do they physically do while they're doing the line? Do they get up? Do they stop? The way they respond to someone saying something to them, does it seem legitimate, authentic? You'll actually, that's the thing you'll actually know, and that's all you can do. So when I'm directing actors, I just ask myself, does this feel real? And even if everyone on set is laughing, that doesn't really matter to me. Does it feel real? And, uh, and that's kind of it, and that's what I've gone off of. We're going to come around with mics, so wait for the mic so everybody can hear the question. I just have a follow-up to that. With that being said, do you allow your actors to improvise at all? I do. Um, look, I, I work very hard on my screenplays, and usually the, people that I, the reason why actors show up on my set is because they like the screenplays, so we pretty much stick to the dialogue. That said, when you're working with guys like Jason Bateman or Danny McBride, you know, you, you let them have a little fun. Um, or not have fun. I think that's actually the wrong word. I misspoke there. It's more if they find a way into something or find a way out of something that really adds to the scene. What I love about those actors is their idea of improv. I mean, the problem is when usually when you let actors do improv, you don't really get anything good out of it. I mean, the, 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 the result is they may be funny, but who gives a fuck? I mean, anyone can be funny. You need something that propels the story forward, that helps your characters, that helps the drama. And what I like about those two guys and a few others that I've worked with is when they add something, they add something legitimate that is really helping. It's not adding a joke. It's, uh, it's moving your story forward. It's giving you transitionary material. It's informing you more about who these guys are. Um, you clearly have a cast full of talented people, but um, I was just wondering um, what it was like working with Vera Farmiga, who's one of my favorite actresses. Vera's wonderful. Look, um, look, I had a very tricky character here in that, uh, and you guys haven't seen the movie, so you don't really know to the extent uh, kind of who she is in this movie. But a, she goes toe to toe with George Clooney the whole time, and that you know is one thing. But b. Her character is really tricky tonally. Uh, through her character, I'm trying to explore female midlife crisis in a way that I feel like hasn't been explored properly on screen. And uh, what I love about her is that she doesn't judge her characters. And she's able to hit a very fine tonal line. She's able to be as masculine as she is feminine, as sensitive as she is tough. She's able to own her own sexuality. But most importantly, she doesn't judge her character, and that's a big thing for me. And this is a very easy character to judge. And I can't really go into why until you see the film. So I encourage you to see the film. I think we do have some clips, uh, if you ever want to, you know, if we can pop one up. I think. Oh, no, we're not watching clips. You're watching me. Okay. You want to watch clips, go on iTunes. I've got a question you here. You came the... here to see me, and I'm not leaving this fucking stage. Until... In the third row. Sorry, I'm a little punchy. I've been doing this for about a month straight. I've been on 15 flights in the last 17 days. Um... I'm a little punchy, and I'm going to take it out on you guys tonight, and that's kind of all there is to it. <laughs> yeah. What's up, man? I'm Scott. How are you? Hey, Scott. Uh, talk, can you talk a little bit about your preparation, and also if you, how you would deal with two actors who like to prepare differently? 
meaning? Uh, it's an excellent long. question that no one's ever asked me before. I mean, and not the preparer. How do you deal with two actors who work differently? Because that's really tricky. That's, that, that, that's tough directing. Um, how do I prepare? God, uh, in so many ways. Uh, you know, the screenplay is the way in which I really prepare. I mean, I write everything I need to know into my screenplay. But when it comes to shooting, I go to locations, and I try to take a photo of every angle I'm going to shoot in the end. And I bring two stand-ins who act as the actors, so I can really actually like set up every shot with my camera, take a photo with the actors in the location. So when I get to shoot, I know what I'm shooting. Um, I don't rehearse. I don't believe in the idea of rehearsal. I've never met an actor who actually enjoys rehearsal, um, and I feel it wastes the good stuff. If you're doing a play and you need to get it right before you go to stage, obviously it makes sense. But in a film, I want the first time someone says something to another, I want to be seeing them on camera. That's just me. Um, working with two actors who work differently is very tricky. You know, um, There's all sorts of things you have to do, to be honest. Um, first, you have to figure out who is the actor who's better on take one, who is the better actor on take five. Because you want the actor who's better on take one on camera first and the other person on the off camera. And you want the person who's better on take five, whose first few takes are always lousy, to be off camera first and then you switch them to on camera. Um, the best thing is when you have an actor who is just real and just legit and they just do it. And, you know, they're not overly emotional and all over the road. If you have two actors working together who are both all over the road, that's a lot of work. Um, and you just have to know you're going to have to do a lot of takes with both. Um, you only need one good take. So my first advice is don't get nervous when someone's all over the road. If they, if, if some actors, they do ten takes. Every, everyone is different. It's annoying, but as long as one of those ten is good, then you're going to be fine. So at that point, the big rule is just be patient and know that you're going to have to do that on both sides. Um, figure out which actor is the more reasonable one and align yourself with them. <laughs> it's another good technique. Um, so you could just kind of confide with them on side and go, look, I'm going to be doing this to get this out of the other actor, just so you know. Remember that your job is to manipulate people into doing something that they don't want to do. That's what you're doing as a director. You just want them to be honest. Now, sometimes the best way to get an actor to do something is tell them exactly what you want. But sometimes the best way to get an actor to do something is tell them exactly what you don't want. Or, or give them a direction, like just do it faster, knowing that by selling do it faster, they'll become more excited. Or... Put no mustard on it, knowing that by doing it, they'll do something else. Or tell an actor, I want you to focus on this line, knowing that you don't give a shit about that line, but it's the line after that you care about. But if they just focus on the first line, they'll stop caring about the second line so much, and they'll finally do it right. So you develop little tricks. It is harder than when you have two actors who work differently. I don't work with actors who use method or any of that crap. So I, I kind of steer away from that in general just by not casting them. You know, when I, I meet an actor, I don't audition, I meet actors. I generally, by the time I'm meeting them, know that they're right for the part. The big question for me is, how do you like to work? Are you a nice person? That's the most important thing. I don't want to work with dicks. Life's too short. And two, how do you work? What is it going to be like when I tell you to do this? Just tell me. Let me know. Um, and, uh, and I finally get a lot out of that. Yeah. We have sure. a question right here in the front row. Hi, um, I'm going to Tisch for uh, NYU, and I'm studying dramatic writing, like screenwriting. So, and I had a, uh, seen an interview with you with Diablo Cody, and she was talking about how um, you, as a director, you had worked closely with her, and that she was on set a lot, which most directors. She in the interview she had said that screenwriters and directors, like she was on 
said a lot and that doesn't happen as much. So I don't know if you could talk about that relationship with her as the writer and also being on set with you and working. Well, I love just hanging out with Diablo. So uh, just from moment, you know, I love having her on set because I just like to be with her. She's kind of like my long lost sister, um, but the kind of sister you get along with. Um, And she's an unbelievable asset because she understands the material better than anyone. She wrote it. And if I need extra dialogue or anything like that, I can go to her. I remember I once said, I need a scene that where this happens. And she just went and she wrote it. She went off. She wrote it like on the back of, I don't know, like a napkin or something came back and we shot it. Um, so I find it very useful to have the writer there. I'm not, look, I'm a writer myself, so I'm not really threatened by having another writer on set. I think maybe some directors are. They feel like there's some sort of kind of challenge uh, to their ego to have the writer there. Um, I don't. I like having the writer there. And I'm very kind of honest with my writers when I first meet them. Um, I say, look, I want to collaborate with you, but at the end of the day, I'm the boss, Applesauce. You know, my way goes. And um, I'm open-minded, but very, very opinionated. And as long as you can deal with that, we're going to work together great. And I find that kind of honesty, it's like any relationship. You know, honesty and and communication is going to solve everything. The question here in the third row. Thank you for coming and being so honest about your career and your life. It's awesome. Certainly. Yeah. um, I had a question. In Juno, for example, I thought you, every character you created was very three-dimensional and very real and had very strong character development. How did you go about making all those characters really come off the page so strongly you know, so that they were real human beings. Honestly, I think I understand people. I wish I could say, oh, there was a technique where I sat down and I wrote an essay about each character, but I don't do any of that. I have no idea where my characters come from. I don't know where they go. I remember Vera asked me in this movie, she's like, what does my character do for them? I said, I have no idea. Pick one. Lawyer? Lawyer good? You want to be a lawyer? I, um, I just, I don't know. Um, I think it's an instinctual job. And what happens is you start with your first short film and you make it and you do an okay job. And basically you have an idea in your head and you have a feeling that you want to convey. You want to make the audience feel that. And at first you don't know exactly how to do it. It's like trying to paint a painting that's in your head. At first you don't quite know. It's like, oh shit, this is not at all what was in my head. And um, you basically make a thousand decisions a day whether you know it or not. And it almost is binary. It's like one zero one zero 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 one zero one one zero one one zero. You know, it's like that. It's like yes or no, red or the blue one, this one versus that one, happier, sadder, start fast, start sooner. You know, it's it's that kind of stuff. The culmination of which makes you feel something. So after the first short film, you're like, oh, I got that about ten percent right. And by the you know, by the time you're making a feature, maybe you can get a fifty percent right. I look from thank you for smoking to Juno to this film, and I think my ability to kind of articulate the moment has grown exponentially. And uh, and I hope it continues to go in that direction. So how you get your characters to be three-dimensional, uh, think of them as human beings and really think to yourself, what would they do in this situation or in that situation? Um, Understand story versus location. I remember, um, I remember my father once was like, Jason, you got to come over and watch 24. I was like, the TV show? And he's like, yes, it's amazing. It's like, the one with Kiefer Sutherland, yes, you have to come over. So I went over to his house, and he put on 24. It was the first season. And I sat down, and I watched it with him. And I was like, wow, you're right. This is really, really good. But there's like 20 shows about terrorism. Why is this show so good? He said, because it's not about uh, terrorism. 
Terrorism is the location. This is a movie. This is a TV show about a guy trying to keep his family together. I was like, oh my God, you're right. All the other TV shows are about terrorism. This one, the location is terrorism, but it's about a guy trying to keep his family together. And that was a huge lesson. I remember just, it was like, it was like a light bulb. It's like, you have to make sure that your location doesn't become your plot. Thank You for Smoking is not a movie about cigarette lobbying. Cigarette lobbying is a location to make a movie about a guy who's trying to figure out how to be a libertarian and be a father at the same time. Juno is not a movie about teenage pregnancy. Teenage pregnancy is a location for a movie about people trying to figure out what is the moment you decide to grow up. And this new movie, this is not about, a mo- this is not a- about you know, uh, uh, corporate termination. Corporate termination is a location for a movie about a guy trying to figure out whether or not he wants to be alone in the universe. So I find once you separate location out and you focus on what your movie is really about, it becomes very clear who your characters need to be and how they need to be well-rounded. Otherwise, you won't have anything. There's a question down here in the front row, too. When you get a new script, uh, what's the thing that affects your opinion first on that script? First thing, okay, when I get a new script, first thing that affects my opinion is if there's too much description. I hate description. People, like, when I open a script and there's, like, just paragraph after paragraph, I'm just like, uh, and I, I, I literally just start reading the dialogue because I just, I don't care. I, I just, I, that's the first thing. Second, um, most important, is it unusual? Do you have a fresh point of view? Every screenplay is the same is the sad truth. I've maybe read four or five screenplays of the thousands of screenplays I've read in my life that turn me on, that make me go, yes, I need to direct this. I have a general rule. If I'm going to direct a screenplay, I have to feel the following. I have to feel as though if someone else were to direct that screenplay, it would feel worse than if another man was fucking my wife. Like, literally, it has to feel that bad. And I remember when I read Charlie Wilson's War, and I was like, oh, my God, this is so me. I know how to direct this. And I made the phone call, uh, and I was like, I want to direct Charlie Wilson's War. They're like, well, you know, Mike Nichols is like, oh, shit. And it felt like Mike Nichols was fucking my wife. Um, But I've only had a few of those screenplays. So it's got to be unusual. The character has to make new decisions. You have to have a new point of view on something. I mean, but look, that's me. You can't take that as kind of, it depends, as advice on how to write screenplays because maybe you don't want me to direct your screenplay. Maybe you just want to sell a screenplay. If you want to sell a screenplay, then you should write something that's exactly the same as everything else on the screen because they need those movies. But if you want to make something that I would direct, then it should have a fresh point of view. Look, I've made three movies. One's about the head lobbyist for Big Tobacco. One's about a pregnant teenage girl. Another one's about a guy who fires people for a living. I like tricky new characters. I like having a fresh point of view on those kind of characters. So it just depends on what you want. Um, it sounds like you, you've come to the books that you've adapted on your own rather than having some ex- executive or studio be like, dude, this is what's next. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering what you've been reading and uh, if you've dug anything lately. Yeah, um, the next thing I'm going to adapt is Joyce Maynard's Labor Day, uh, which just came out. It's a terrific book. Um, I don't read enough, frankly. Um, but I have read a couple things I like recently. Uh, the stuff I've read recently, you can't adapt. Like, I loved Christopher Hitchens' God is Not Great, but it's hard to imagine how you make that into a movie. Um, 
Um, right here in the third I'm Very row. curious about the note taking. Yeah, I would be too. I, uh, <laughs> um, are, are you really just taking notes because you're writers, or are you, are you, do, you, do, you, do you have a blog? Or, um, sorry? I'm writing for a Tribeca Film Festival's website. Okay. Yeah. I, I know what the poll quote will be. It needs to feel like they're fucking my wife. That'll be. Uh, <laughs> no. Mike my wife's going to love this. Yeah. My question was as a screenwriter, do you find adaptions, adaptations um, preferable? Do you prefer them? To write yeah, for stories. whatever reason, I'm an adapter. I um, I like adapting books rather than writing original screenplays. I wrote some really shitty original screenplays when I first got out of college, which I think everyone needs to do. And I encourage you to write about five to a thousand page, five hundred to a thousand pages of bad screenplay. I believe that. How many of you read the Robert Rodriguez book um, Rebel Without a Crew? Two of you. <sighs> that is the best book ever written on filmmaking. Rebel Without a Crew. And he talks about the idea of getting the bad stuff out of you, um, which I did. Uh, maybe I have more to go, but I did get a lot of it out of me. Uh, I, I, for whatever reason, I'm kind of a reactive artist, and I think of directing as less creative and more reactive. You look at a book. You have a, uh, you know, a take on it. You watch a performance. You think it should be this or that. You look at a piece of production design or a location photo or a costume or an edit, or you listen to a song. Um... It's, it's, it's not about what's in your head as much as what you're seeing and how you react to it. And for, and, and for that reason, usually there's things that I want to say. Um, and I read a book and I find someone like-minded who is kind of has the word choice and the ideas. And I go, oh, they're talking about what I feel. And from there I can make it into a film. And that's not to say that I do very true adaptations. The adaptation of this um, is actually very different from the book. You haven't seen the movie yet, but just to give you an idea, uh, Anna Kendrick and Vera Farmiga's characters are not even in the book. And these are the two main women who challenge George Clooney's character's life. So um, it doesn't mean you can't be original, but I do like having something that kind of sparks me. We're here in the second row. Uh, your father is very... I'm sorry, Bobby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Your father is very versatile directors. Yeah. I was just curious that you ever sort of like thinking about tackling a different genres, such as like a video pieces like that. Right. The question is, you know, have I ever thought about doing different genres? And it's funny. I get this question a lot, and it I like the, getting that question because I think it's uh, I get to speak about something important here. Uh, I think you need to find out what your voice is. When I talk to young filmmakers. I'm, I, I, what I see in them, and it's something I felt when I was usually their age, is they want to make one of every film. They want to make an action film and a musical and a western and a comedy and a period piece. And uh, every time they come out of a great movie, like, I need to make one of those. And, I, and that's nice. But you need to figure out what your voice is. And the directors that you admire did that. They figured out their voice and then began to make those films. And every once in a while, perhaps they tried a different genre, but it was still very much their voice. Um, you need to make, figure out what your voice is by writing and directing. When I made my first short film, it so desperately wanted to be Quentin Tarantino. Uh, it was pathetic. And, and then I wrote things that sounded like Kevin Smith, and I wrote things that sounded like Richard Linklater, and then I finally 
found my voice. I started to realize that I had kind of a natural way of approaching things. And when I started avoiding that, at first I was kind of avoiding that to try to be like other filmmakers. And when I finally just said, well, this seems to be how I want to write it. Why don't I just go kind of the natural way that I would word things? I began in writing to find my voice and then in directing I did the same. So I don't really care about trying on a bunch of different genres. Could I? Yeah, I'm a pretty good director. I probably could do it. But honestly, the most important thing to me right now is to tell personal stories, stories that come from my heart. Now, I don't really have any personal stories that are big-budget ideas or fantasy ideas or horror ideas right now. Um, And I can't help but think that if you see me make one of those films, it's probably because I sold out and ran out of shit to say. Um... Or maybe my wife left me off of, after my comments today and I'm going through a brutal divorce. But um, no, I think I want to make kind of small personal films the way I've been making for the last three and do that as long as I can until I run out of things to say. And then hopefully I'll die. Because uh, that seems to be the best career move sometimes. We're back here in the third row. Hi. Uh, I'm a, a director and I self-financed my first movie, did the festivals and got distribution, yada, yada. But um, trying to figure out, I don't know how to get, how, what's the best way to get financing for like a slightly bigger movie if you had any advice on that? Well, how big a movie? A million dollars. That's a very tough movie to make. It's the hardest it's easier to make a $10,000 movie. It's oddly easier to make a $50 million movie than a $1 million movie because there's no model for monet- sorry, monetizing a $1 million movie. Um, million bucks? Half a million? Is this an auction? Uh, half a million? What is the idea? Is it? No. Um, half a million bucks? Just as tricky. I mean, half a million dollars? You should be looking to rich people at that point. You know what I mean? Because uh, the studio is not going to spend five hundred thousand dollars on a movie, they'd much rather spend two hundred million dollars on a movie than half a million dollars on a movie. So at that point, you need to find rich people or the very few people who are actually making uh, films that size. I would say, get a screenplay. You got a screenplay. Get actors because actors make movies. At the end of the day, you can do that. Uh, and if your last movie was any good, use that as a way of getting the actors and convince the studio that you can direct this thing. Well, it depends on what your movie's about. If your movie's really indie and you shouldn't be spending a lot of money on it, look, one thing I believe in is that you should spend the appropriate amount of money on your film. And if you have a really indie idea that shouldn't be made for a lot of money in a studio, then yes, you're right. You should probably make it for half a million to a million bucks. It's going to be really tough, as you already know. The best way to secure that money is to get actors. Actors make movies. That's kind of all there is to it. Sure, I know. I know it's not helpful, but that, that's the truth. I'm just reiterating what you already know, but, you know, now it has a more brutal finality to it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but there's lots of teenagers that people know. Right, go see a high school musical movie. Uh, there's, uh, you'd be surprised, but some of them are capable of. Look, hey, um, I think uh, I've worked with three young actresses in a row, Ellen Page, Olivia Thirlby, and Anna Kendrick, who I think are phenomenal young actresses and great representations of the... 
Um, I made the movies. You're right. They didn't give me financing. Uh, Ellen Page coming off of... Uh, but you know what? There's got to be a talented uh, Ellen Page that people know somewhat. Miley Cyrus. Um, Question here in the third row. Can you, can you talk a little bit more, say, for example, if you were a young filmmaker, how would you... I mean, the festival circuit is one way of getting some recognition and maybe getting some meetings. What are some other ways? Because a lot of people won't take meetings unless they know you or they don't take unsolicited scripts. Or... I don't really know another way. Okay. I, I, I'm thrilled that there is a film festival system. Look, you're lucky to have that. Okay. Uh, look, the... The only frustration of the film festival system is that they have these, you know, fees for submitting your films, and those can add up if you're submitting to a lot of places. But otherwise, it's a completely democratic system. Like, what more could you actually ask for uh, than a system like this where your film can play, could film can play huge festivals, it could actually win awards and get recognition. And by putting that name, look, again, I think a lot of people think that because... I am the son of my father. People would want to work with me and want to view my material. It is the opposite. The presumption is that my work is going to be awful like the other children of famous people. So it was even more important for me to have some sort of demarcation of quality. And that came when I played Sundance. I was like, yeah, but I played Sundance. Maybe you should watch it. Oh, maybe I should. So I, I don't know another way. That, but that system works pretty damn well. Or Tribeca, sorry. <laughs> but not the New York Film Festival. I don't know, I just felt like going negative on them. They Question turned down Thank You for Smoking in Juno, and now I'm like, eh, New York Film Festival. Question here in the back. Uh, hi, sorry, I, I'm getting the impression you're making everything sound a little bit too easy or something? like. Uh, oh, no, uh, sorry, no, let me be very clear. Uh, it is very difficult. Look, one of three things is the truth. Either you are talented and it'll be recognized, you are talented and it won't be recognized, which would be sad, or most likely you are not talented and it will be recognized. <laughs> you have to be talented, skillful, extraordinarily lucky. Um, you have to have the right thing to say at the right moment. It's very, very difficult. So I'm sorry if I gave the impression that there it's easy. I have a, a okay, sorry, yes. So what do you have like a cautionary tale or like a nightmare or like what was the thing that kept you maybe kept you going? I, I mean, not the thing that motivated you to not give up, but like oh. what was the like, you gotta it, be like fucking the non-magic moment that you have to it. deal with regularly? No, you got to be hungry and competitive. Um, you want to you want to to kill your fellow filmmaker. I mean, uh, that's got to be in you. Uh, look, um Everyone's hungry for different reasons. I was hungry because I desperately wanted to make a name for myself. Uh, for whatever reason, look, I grew up in Beverly Hills. A lot of kids who do are really complacent. For me, that was the reason I wanted to make a name for myself, and I'm hungry. Now, it didn't mean I was talented. I did happen to be talented. But I could have been untalented, and then I would have figured something else to do. But you have to be hungry. I remember when Thank You for Smoking came out, uh, it won, the screenplay like, won a lot of awards. It won some critics' awards. It got nominated for a Writers Guild Award. Uh, I'm not telling you this to boast. I'm, I have a point here. And um, I remember when the Oscars came out, it was, it was kind of the, the prognosticators thought it was supposed to be a nominee. And I woke up that morning at like 4.30 in the morning, and the broadcast comes on, and it wasn't nominated. Borat took my spot. A fucking improvised movie took my screenplay spot. Um... And my father called me. My father had been up like an hour before me, and he called me up, and 
he consoled me, and I don't really remember what he said when he was consoling me, but I do remember the one thing he said was, it's only going to make you more hungry. And that was 100% true. Uh, so I, I don't know what to tell you about how to get through the time when you're not making it. You've got to want it that fucking bad. I, I, I don't know what else to, to tell you. Um, and if it doesn't work for you, you have to find something else that makes you happy. Sorry. Sorry I don't have more than that. I'm doing what, you know, it's just you're talking about magic and the moments in, like, how your career progressed. You kind of skimmed over the beginning when you were... You kind of skimmed over the beginning when you were actually doing the short films, going to shopping your stuff around the film festivals, and then went to Thank You for Smoking. And I was kind of more interested in the stuff that happened before Thank You for Smoking. Well, from 1998 to 2005, which was, you know, call it seven or eight years... I was making short films. The first short film, all right, I was at USC and I started a calendar company and I made these desk calendars. And the desk calendar money paid for my first short film. And then my girlfriend at the time, I don't know how, came up with this jewelry idea that like took off. And I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm being honest here. Uh, was this hot idea that became like the fad of the moment and I ran the jewelry company for her and we were in... 40 fucking countries. We were at Barney's, we were in Neiman's, we were in Saks. It was like a huge thing. And jewelry money paid for a couple of my short films, including the one that really started my career. I remember I missed the Aspen Shorts Fest the year I won Audience Award and Best Comedy because I was here in New York selling jewelry uh, to women who own like jewelry stores all over the Midwest at this convention at Pier... Pier 90? Pier... Whatever it's called. Um... Uh... So I was hustling in very strange ways. Um, and then I got to direct commercials. And I directed commercials, and I directed some good commercials, and I directed awful commercials. I directed an Outback Steakhouse commercial that if you ever saw it, you would say, you are not allowed to direct ever again. Uh, but filmmaking is learning from your mistakes. You got to know the first time you try to direct something, it's not going to be good. It's like the first time you try to write a sentence and uh, you're expected to tell a story. And really, it comes from writing and directing as much as you possibly can and trying it and realizing why you're not moving the audience as much as you are. When you thought a moment was supposed to do something, don't kid yourself. It doesn't work. Figure out why. Try something else. And look, um, if you are trying to be a filmmaker right now, you are lucky to be alive right now. Look, in the 70s, Coppola said the next, uh, the next Mozart will be a kid with a, a video camera uh, from the middle of nowhere. And he was right. He was just early. It couldn't happen yet. Now, if you have a video camera, you can shoot it. If you need to edit it, <laughs> it's funny. Usually at this point I say you could probably steal Final Cut Pro in about 30 minutes with a good download speed, but uh, you could buy it here in the iTunes store, in the Apple store. Um, and then you could distribute it online using YouTube. My last short film, shot at home, cut on Final Cut Pro, put it on YouTube, had a couple million hits. So you're at a time when you could be making films all the time. And the youngest generation of filmmakers right now blows me away. Their understanding of cinema verite 
wipes the floor with my generation of filmmakers. I mean, I see things done by high schoolers now where their understanding of how to use handheld and create reality and edit sophisticatedly. Sophisticatedly? Is that a word? Um, really blows me away. Uh, so there is no excuse anymore. You should be making films as much as possible and trying to become better and see if you have the goods. Question here in the fourth row. Was Juno a pro-life political statement? Really? Are you asking sincerely? Look, um, Christopher Buckley, the guy who wrote the book, Thank You for Smoking, once said to me that when a movie works best, it's a mirror. And you simply see yourself in it. And I've been fortunate in that my movies have been mirrors. Thank You for Smoking, liberals thought it was theirs, conservatives thought it was theirs. Juno, pro-lifers thought it was theirs, pro-choicers uh, think it's theirs, and, uh, and the same thing happens with this film, Up in the Air. Um, <laughs> I remember um, there's a great wedding sequence in this film, and I want to just throw a real wedding. That's how we shot it. I mean, there's so many wedding scenes that have been done that I, um, I thought, how do you do a new wedding scene? And the way we did it, and I really, was really proud of this, we threw a wedding, hired a wedding coordinator, got a priest, got a wedding band, um, and through a wedding, and the people who shot it were actually the wedding videographers with cameras, and the stills were done by our still photographer dressed as a wedding photographer. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. But when I went to hire the priests, nobody wanted to make the movie. I literally had, a, I had one priest who had counted the F-words and, and uses of the word Jesus in my film. Nobody wanted to do the film. It was blown me away. And I remember one of them said, I just want to thank you for making such a great pro-life film in Juno. I said, no, it's my pleasure. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. Have a good one, guys. See you later. Thank you. The film is up in the air. And when is it in theaters? Uh, December. December. So be on the lookout for it. Check it out. You guys have been a wonderful audience. Uh, visit the store's website at apple.com slash Soho for more upcoming events. We have uh, Wes Anderson this coming Wednesday with actors Jason Schwartzman and Meryl Streep to talk about uh, the fantastic Mr. Fox. And then later this month... Um, Richard Linklater joins us. Uh, so apple.com slash Soho. Check it out. We'll see you next time.